Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Digital disruption significantly alters the way industries, companies, and societies operate. These groundbreaking advancements often create new markets or redefine existing ones, challenging established businesses and transforming our lives and work. As a demonstration of this, 4.9 billion people use the internet worldwide. That's 62% of the global population, and it's increasing at a rate of 4% every year. Today, I am joined by Guy Morse, an author and president of Author Events Network, and David Van Beekham, co-founder of Tweeva, to discuss digital disruption and the impact it has on our lives. To support the show, visit chrishood.com slash show, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, follow us on social media, or you can email me directly, show at chrishood.com. I'm Chris Hood, and let's get connected. Connecting. Access granted. It's the Chris Hood Digital Show, where global business and technology leaders meet to discuss strategy, innovation, and digital acceleration. Five, four, three, two, one. Your digital evolution starts now. Here's your host, Chris Hood. Let's get right into this and meet our guest. Guy, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. My name is Guy Morris, and uh, I came from a 36-year professional career with Fortune 100 companies, mainly in high-tech, global energy software companies such as IBM, Oracle, Microsoft, uh, Burroughs, uh, Occidental Petroleum, and a number of startups. I got my career started by disrupting technology. I was the first person to develop a macroeconomic model that outperformed the Federal Reserve, the blue chips, every single university in the nation, because I tie the economic growth and, um, and other factors such as unemployment and interest rates to a what was then an innovative approach to basically tie it to technology productivity. And so that productivity wave that we rode all the way through the late 70s and 80s and early 90s with Paul Volcker and, and the other Federal Reserves were based on the model that I, was, I, I created. And that model got me a scholarship into graduate school as well as accepted into Harvard Graduate School and it got me my first job at IBM. But that was the beginning. My career was really, I mean, over the last 40 years, uh, I was in business for 36, but over that time frame, we've really had a number of disruptive technologies from uh, desktop computing to the internet in general um, and internet communications that bypassed mail and the security and the problems with basically communicating uh, overseas with teams overseas. I was also involved in the early stages of artificial intelligence when it was called expert systems. Um, uh, as well as cloud services with, while I was at Microsoft. So I've been involved in a number of stages where technologies would come and absolute, absolutely disrupt an industry, uh, an entire industry, or disrupt the business and basically force competitive changes the business would have to t make in order to stay competitive with their peers. And so it's, it's it been a process. It's been a great career. Uh, it's been exciting because it's, it's a constant state of learning, and reevaluating what your core strengths are and what could what could change to actually optimize that and take advantage of those technologies. Awesome. David, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes. Hey, uh, my name is David Van Beekham. And uh, so I grew up 
around computers and technology. Uh, my father was electrical contractor, and he would love to bring home any piece of a machinery or equipment that was left over. So when I grew up, it was out in the garage. There was no car there. It was just full of boxes, technology. There would be a, a grommeted switch for a clean room on one shelf, transformer on another, and a pneumatic pump on another with 17 rolls of wire ranging in gauges from eight to you know, 38. And uh, circuit boards, microwaves, and computers was kind of my upbringing. Uh, first computers being 286 when I was like eight years old. And so I kind of grew up around the technology wave and I just kind of stuck with it over time. Uh, I was homeschooled, so I spent a lot of time networking my home at 12 years old. Eventually just started building web design and databases. Never really had a real job, just kind of worked as a freelancer slash self-employed uh, forever. And you do that a couple of times and you realize, okay, I'm building something for someone else. Can we do this with a partner? Can we build out something bigger? So right now I'm working on a startup and uh, just having a lot of fun in, the, in this technological world, but keeping an eye out for that next disruptive technology. I think a good place for us to start is a theoretical question. We talk about technology disruption, but maybe we need to define what is disruption or what does disruption really mean? We could talk about technology innovations. And so is there really a difference between innovation and disruption or where does the disruption actually come into the conversation? I think that's a little bit of both. The disruption is on the second half of the innovation. So the innovation is happening most of the time behind the closed doors of, you know, someone funding a project, someone doing a little bit of research with that next piece of technology. And then the disruption is when it starts to hit some sort of public name and it usually changes the name. And the funniest thing was when cloud computing came out or cloud servers Everybody started talking about, oh, it's in the cloud. I'm like, guys, there's been data rooms out there since 70s, 80s. It was a hosted server. It was a dedicated server, right? And now it's, oh, it's cloud. And so when you think of why, oh, well, we needed an older generation to understand what this was. So you can't just say, well, it's been a server. This is the same thing. Well, you had to come up with a new name. So when did that become innovative? And when was it disruptive by 20 to 30 years? Now, that's because computers just came by and Guy was talking about the technology cycle of the 70s to the 80s to the 90s was like the first piece in everything. It, that what, that's what pushed the market, IBM, all the computer technologies pushed incredible moves in all those companies because of technological cycle. But when did it start? It, first with the innovation piece. So yeah, they are two separate things. And I think as a business, you have to always keep an eye out for innovation. You said some great comments there. I think I might add a little bit to that. I think innovation is really the, the things that you're doing continuously to improve based on an existing technology that you're getting at. You're innovating on how to actually use that, to apply it, to broaden it, to find applications for it. And there is a little bit of that sort of a new thing. And you mentioned the internet and cloud services. And we did have terminal services and, and other server-based, data center-based services but using web browsers to basically build applications from me actually building an application on a server and then hosting that back to my customers was an innovation. That innovation created 
disruption. And I think the difference between innovation and disruption is when you start to see businesses fall away, um, business models fall away, new business models developing in their place. And you're seeing major transitions between employment, between I used to have a skill, that skill is no longer sellable. I have to develop a new skill in order to stay working. And you've got an information, a, an educational component to that disruption that's, that tells the customers, uh, suppliers, supply chain, everyone else, how they need to then change in order to be part of that new industry. And so I think disruption comes when we see new industries develop and all of the economic transformations and just changes that have to go along with that across not just a company or single technology, but across the board. I think the part that you just laid in there, educating the customer about what is needed next, how to use this technology. Oftentimes businesses aren't able to keep up with the innovation or the changes in technology that are happening. And the customers are driving it by saying, hey, I want to connect with you using this particular type of technology. And so then businesses have to try to figure out a way to accelerate that in order to be able to maintain the expectations customers have. I think it's a good point, but you're always going to see the innovation, uh, for example, let's say uh, electronic payments through a Venmo or something. You've got the, the innovation that basically says, hey, you could use this as a new form of payment. And then when that customer mass really grows enough, they can go back to their other uh, services and say, hey, I want you to, instead of just my credit card, I want you to also accept this other form. And so we do see that, but, but before the customers themselves can really drive that demand, there has to be a core service or a core inf- uh, technology to exist in order for them to say, hey, this, I find value in this, therefore I want, it to, I want to see it more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And those transitions are happening faster now you know, than they did before. And I started thinking about the transitions and and how many years would have it taken to go from horse and buggy to car or the the pain and suffering that would have happened during those times and the talk and the the conferences and the there was no podcasts there was no streaming content there was no way to get that data quickly to the business except maybe through word of mouth and it always gets transitioned a different way if you think about the the cyclical nature of a transition in technology, it can cause a lot of damage. So the more we talk about this and the more that the end user client understands, okay, this is coming down the road, like you talked about with Venmo, what do I need to start preparing for or thinking about? This makes even changes in their purchases of today, of what that technology may be in five years. Because they're thinking, what kind of API integrations? I know I, I look at that. What can I connect to? Because that's the world that we're going into. Well, I think you make an interesting point in terms of the acceleration of these things happening. And I think we've got a, a baseline of a digital platform right now through the cloud and browsers um, and, and, and cloud services to really uh, drive that faster. Just a case in point. When we were first transitioning um, from a corporation that had only five desktop computers, and those were on the desks of five VPs, none of which knew how to use it. It was basically there for show. And we had to transition to uh, getting desktops into every department and then on every desk. And that that huge investment when you're talking at the time, like $6,000, $8,000 per desk. And that was a lot of money back then. 
<laughs> um, it's a lot of money now. In order to actually understand what those options were and understand what the choices were, understand what the implications were and be able to ask questions and discuss it, I had to bring sales reps into my office. And so what would took me a period of weeks or months to gather enough information to go to the executives and say, this is what I'm going to propose. This is what we need to do. I can now go online and basically go to websites and get that information in a matter of hours. So part of the acceleration is that rapid access is that fluid access to the information needed to download. And then I could rather than waiting for them to deliver the software and then actually had to put that in and install it on every machine. It's now a click away download. And so the the acceleration is in part because of the previous innovations to make software ubiquitous to the business environment um, rather than tying up thousands of sales reps to basically visit every corporation on the planet in order to get convince them over months of time to, that this is something they needed to do. So you, part of that acceleration is as we accumulate those technologies, the technology basically accelerates itself. You know, we talk about access to the information. And if we just progress over, say, the last 200, 300 years, it used to be by mail carrier in some form or another. Then we get to email and today, obviously, with AI, it's even becoming faster. The ability for us to get the information or answers to the questions we have is at an all-time apex in terms of speed. And how is that going to impact how we make decisions in businesses today? That's an excellent question. And one of the things that I, I talk about oftentimes is that the speed of the innovation now is coming faster than our ability to understand the implications uh, in the business, on society, um, and, and on the world, and either legally, morally, ethically, uh, best practices. Um, so we're, it's actually running faster than we can keep up with it. A few weeks ago, there was a, a number of different AI scientists who signed a letter to saying we need to slow down and really think about how this is going and, and how do we necessarily put some of those controls in place before it gets out of hand. With social media was a great example. We produced social media. It just exploded in popularity in a matter of a couple of years, hundreds of millions and billions of people joining. And then we start realizing that there's a psychological, there's a social, there's other impacts to this. And we're kind of catching, we had to do a catch up to say, well, how do, we, and we're still catching up to how do we, how do we moderate this in a way that's, um, that's both legal and healthy and, and doesn't have these problems. AI is posing that problem for us right now, where it's moving faster than we really know how to handle. And I think the question that if I were a business is to say, what's strategic to my business? What's strategic for my customer base? How do I make sure that I'm moderating, I'm managing that in a way where the technology doesn't basically get ahead of me um, and create problems that I have to go back and fix? This is where the technology is at a stage where we really need to have a process within the, within the industry to set back and really understand where we're going before we basically take that step. Um, because we could see some missteps and you're seeing some with a with chat GPT came out Google and, um, and and Amazon and a number of others said okay me too me too me I'm gonna push mine out and and we saw some places where they weren't ready and there's a, a tremendous amount of um, 
preparation involved in implementing some of those technologies with regard to the database, the data sources, the, the training of those technologies um, to prevent that. And we're, we're seeing it as a almost an instant fix right now, when in fact, there's been 20 years of progress into artificial intelligence to get us to this level. Now it's become hyper aware because of chat GPT, but we still need to make sure we're doing our homework as an industry to make sure that as how we want to apply it uh, is ready. And it's actually a, doesn't create a liability. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, growing up, at least for me, it was the CNBC was talking about the latest processor, right? With the Intel, what is it generating? How many processes can it do? Then we had multi-threading and you had this physical world that was growing and expanding. And then it was memory and then it was data transfer. And so now we've kind of gone out of the physical and gone into the AI world of how fast can we process this information? What can be shared amongst people? And then, yeah, is there a limit to what we're going to allow it to do? Take how many jobs? I always wonder if this is a precursor for some sort of, uh, you know, universal income where if the, the, the AI is going to do so many things for society to be able to get to the next level, they can't be worried about the job position. I mean, they talk about chat GPT or just AI taking over so many pieces of the industry that is just amazing from writing information to they talk about law. I'm not so sure, but how do you move at that technological speed that you talked about earlier, how everything grows on another without hurting the working population and also paychecks, but looking for that efficiency. It's, it's a hard balance. Well, Morgan Chase produced a study last month that basically said that between now and 2030, they expect 300 million um, job displacements as a result of AI. That's worldwide. Now, when you talk about universal income, when we're already at an incredible debt level in our country, in order to make that transition, we not only have to have and to have social programs put in place, we need tax changes put in place, we need to understand how to make this technology pay for those transitions of those workers, and we're not really even close to getting there yet. So this has the potential of being a you know major situation where you get a handful of extremely obscenely wealthy winners and a mass amounts of poorly prepared losers. But if we think about just technology and we go back to the beginning of our conversation and we look at the various technologies over the course of the last 100 years, I think there's a common theme in all of them. One of the things you mentioned was that $6,000 to put a PC on a desktop. Then we start thinking about accessibility to email and the rapid growth of other types of technologies. The one consistency in all of that has been, it's just becoming more accessible to the average person. AI has been around for over 50 years, at least, if not more, but it's only now that we have regular daily access to that technology. It's one thing if you can control who has access to technology. It's another thing, you can call it Pandora's box if you want. It's another thing when you let that technology out and allow anybody to use it. Social media is another good example. 
you allow people to use social media, they're going to figure out ways to use it that meets their own personal needs or gratifications. We're seeing that now with AI because AI is accessible. Anybody can reach it. One of the issues I bring up in my books is that with nuclear technology, it's internationally controlled. The, the intellectual property for it is controlled. The resources or the people who know how to use it are tightly monitored and watched and controlled. And the um, materials necessary to build uh, nuclear weapons are tightly controlled. Now, things can happen. Things can get out of that control. And we've seen that happen. But with AI, it's an, it's an open field. And people can download the information, can download the tools, can download the technology. And it is being used. Like, for example, I recently read that we're seeing a rapid increase. Elderly people are people being scammed by someone calling, saying that I'm your son. Hey, I'm in trouble. So wire me money. And the voice is so unrecognizable from the true thing that people are basically being scammed. So again, it's a, who has control of this powerful, powerful technology, and are we prepared as a society to, to somehow limit some of these the control access so that we can look at what's being done with this technology? And my biggest fear with AI is not that AI is evil. AI is neither evil nor benign, but there is dark money. And when you see dark money coming into these situations where there could be malicious intent, that creates a problem. Yeah, I think it's that human interaction when it touches the human interaction. So nobody has a problem with AI calculating the numbers or doing a report, right? Or doing my accounting. But when I, I think about if it ever touched the salesperson or if you combine Google glasses or Apple glasses with a real heads up display of facial recognition of the person across you selling, this is going to really, really introduce harm into the sales person to person process. Because you know, somebody's going to say, oh, I'm going to have a BS meter app that I can download. And it's going to take the variations of your voice and the knocking of your knee and the, the flicker of your finger. And I'm going to see if the guy at Starbucks is really who he says he is, or is he selling, right? The guy that comes to my door. And we haven't got there yet. But that's a very disruptive piece that in the industry, it's like, well, okay, it'll never touch sales. Okay, but when it does, what will it do? I think it will touch sales. And I, I, I think the, the, the thing with AI is there are a thousand different, incredible, powerful, positive uses for the technology. Um, the potential for in, in medicine, in material sciences, uh, in uh, astrophysics, in uh, particle sciences, in, in accounting. I, I, I work with a company that uses AI to basically manage large projects to keep them from going off the track long before they're, anybody knows they're going to go off the track. There are, um, uh, you know, you mentioned um, legal. There are a, a thousand really incredibly great uses for artificial intelligence. The problem is, is that, as I mentioned earlier, the technology is moving faster than our social awareness and our abilities to understand how to manage and control it so that we don't also um, get whipped in the backside with all of the negative uh, fraud, um, uh, theft, um, corruption, you know, um, and malicious kind of purposes that it can be used for as well. And so we're putting incredibly powerful tools in the hands of everybody 
And some of those are going to use it for incredibly positive, great ways, which are good, even though they, that also might disrupt employment. We got to be prepared for that so that good people aren't basically trying to figure out how to how to find a job that's not impacted by AI. It, it's like was the old Spider-Man thing with with great power comes great responsibility. And we have to step up to that responsibility before this power really gets out of hand. And it really is almost already there. Yeah, it really is. How everything is happening faster now. It's good. It's very good to be part of a podcast and a group, uh, any kind of person above your level of thinking, especially small businesses, because you can wipe out a whole entire industry with the this AI. Uh, I saw one the other day, upload 20 photos of yourself and it will spit back a hundred professional photos in different places for your headshot, right? For marketing purposes. If that ever hit 50%, 60%, you'd wipe out so many photographers. And I don't know how you deal with that, but that's just one example of the technology moving so quick that it could potentially hurt people. Um, and it's good to have these discussions now in a group setting to say, okay, what are we going to do? How do we implement this either in a, a lower package to bring people in and teach them the differences? But this is going to be a huge undertaking on all levels. I think the other side of this is the usability of the product. So you mentioned like headshots, which sounds like a fascinating idea. But if we go back to your conversations on the legal side, as well as healthcare side, here's a basic scenario for you. And I'd be interested to hear what you think the general public, how would they answer this? You are going into surgery and you have the option of a human surgeon or a fully automated AI surgeon. The AI will perform this surgery at a 99.99% success rate, or you can choose the doctor. What do you think most people would pick? They would absolutely pick the robot, <laughs> depending on the age. I think a lot of people, I'm not sh it's a great question. And there's a second part to that you didn't touch on, which is who, who if something does go wrong, who's legally liable? But I, there are going to be people, just like there are people who stepped up right away, said, yeah, put a chip in my head. There's going to be always those innovators who want to use the tech, who trust the technology more than they trust people. There's going to be a lot of people, particularly in the older generations, the baby boomer generations and, and some of the older generations who are going to say, no, I want my life in the hands of somebody who's has to care for that. And, and I can talk to about it and I can reason with and who will re reassure me. And so I, I think there will be a transition. I think certainly the younger generation, by the time they're at that age where they start to need a lot of surgery, I think are going to be more technology trusting. But I, I think it's going to be a transition first. I don't think it's going to I think you're going to get probably right now today. My guess would be more people would choose the person give another 10 years. And I think that re that trend will reverse. So are we going to be paying for now different levels of models of trained models <laughs> you can buy this model for surgery for 10,000. It's done a hundred thousand surgeries or this one has been trained on a million. It's very strange, but you've seen this in, well, think about like cryptocurrencies or any kind of other technology that we didn't think about 20 years ago. I imagine forecasters could say, well, you could sell anything, but how do you distribute those pieces? 
And that's part of it. It's like you can sell a learning. It's been trained this way or trained that way. But that may, you may lease that to the doctor and the doctor still has to have that one-on-one. -on -one. They may do all the important pieces and then the doctor comes in for the, or less important pieces, and the doctor comes in for the final piece, some sort of prep robot. Well, they may have basically a combination of both. You may have the AI performing certain parts of the surgery, but a doctor on hand in case anything goes wrong. And so now the expense goes way up. The insurance goes way up. Um, who can really, who's going to pay for that in, in the long run? If we start to look towards the future and business owners, individuals who are trying to navigate technology disruption, what are some key tips, next steps, recommendations that we can leave with them? For me, it would just be keep an eye out on that latest innovation that is is happening because you're still a couple of years away from that disruptive technology. I know it's hard. I know you're busy, but it's incredibly important to think about that next step in your business. Again, it's the software that you're downloading. It's if you are in, in the training of 10, 20, 100 people, what software are we using that could implement an AI module piece? to save time or money. It's all about looking towards the future integrations, what the company is doing. Does the company have a research module section of who they are saying, okay, well, we're going to look at the future and see what's there. And if you don't have that, spend a little bit of time speaking with that with your partners saying, where are we going? What, what could be something that would be disruptive in the future? If I were still in business, I would basically set aside this type of model. I'd be looking at first, what are the product innovations that we could be using that might impact our industry in terms of our customer base and outward in terms of those investments? What are the um, investments and in other services that we might be using and, and the cost model for that new product in terms of how, who else are we going to be leveraging on rather than building our own? And what is that? imply for our, our future modeling? And then three, how is that going to impact my employee base uh, in terms of retraining, um, changes in, in skill sets? Do I need to start stop recruiting one skill, start recruiting another skill? What are the changes in my employee base that I might be going along with that? And then how do I then position that in terms of my investors and my shareholders? Um, so I would probably be looking at those four things with what are my opportunities? What are my costs? What is the employee, my, my resource base impact? How does that impact my investors and my shareholders? It's been a fabulous conversation. I appreciate both of your perspectives. I'm sure the audience is going to love hearing all of your insights. David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was an awesome show. And thank you, Guy. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It's been fun. And of course, thanks to all of you who are listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite platform and leave a review. Your feedback helps us improve and grow. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, you can connect with us throughout social media or online at Chris Hood Show or chrishood.com. And please share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, or anyone else looking to grow their business and start their own digital evolution. Until next week, take care and stay connected.